Join me in the book of Obadiah, prophets, looking for this short book. It's just after Amos and before Jonah. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. A messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of the host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is the word of God.
Pray with me as we come to God's Word this morning. Father God, we come to this book of Your Holy Scriptures and we come acknowledging and confessing and giving You praise for the fact that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us. And so we ask that You would teach us this morning. We ask, Holy Spirit, that You would be with us today to help us understand, to illuminate to us the meaning of this Word that God, that You have breathed. And so we ask that in understanding, You would continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds, that You would build our faith, that You would cause us to trust You more, and that You would make our lives more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And Father, that in all this, You would glorify Yourself. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you all find yourselves watching the news and looking at the world around you and reading about what's going on and pulling your hair out more and more and more as you realize all of the wickedness that seems to be festering in our world and the way in which things just seem to be careening down a cliff? Does it feel like that to you? Like everything's just sort of becoming more and more out of control and you're wondering what's going on and it's making you a little crazy? I remember once when I was a a kid in elementary school up here at at Quail Hollow, probably like in fourth grade or so, um, the teacher suddenly in the middle of class had to leave the room unexpectedly. None of us knew why. But she had to leave unexpectedly, and so we were all just sort of in there in this classroom, 20 or 25 of us or so, by ourselves for a little while. A bunch of fourth graders, unsupervised, in a classroom by ourselves. And it didn't take long before we all got rowdy enough that another teacher heard all the ruckus through the wall and came into the room and looked around and said, who's in charge here? And we all sort of stopped, and one little boy said, no one is, (laughs) ma'am. Did you ever feel like the world's like that to you? Does America kind of feel to you like it's, it's a classroom full of unsupervised fourth graders, and all of a sudden they're in charge, and it's just, everybody's just fooling around and making a mess, and we all want to scream, who is in charge here? What's going on around here? How about the circumstances of your life individually? Does it feel to you sometimes like your life just consists of a, a, a stream of random or, or purposeless or uncontrollable and unpleasant and miserable circumstances one after the other that seem to have no end, for which there seem to be no solutions? Is it tempting sometimes to feel hopeless because of that? So I'm guessing that the answer is yes for all of us, for some more than others. And I'm guessing that in those times, which we do all experience to one degree or the other, where we're feeling like tearing our hair out because of the chaos that seems to be careening out of control in the world, and where we're feeling helpless, where we're feeling maybe hopeless about the things in our lives that seem like they don't have a an end or a solution, I'm guessing that in those kinds of times, 
many of us have learned and many of us are learning, hopefully all of us are learning to turn to God's Word for help and for perspective and for comfort and encouragement and strength. But I'm guessing that when we do that, when we turn to God's Word for those things, I'm guessing that maybe the book of Obadiah isn't one of the big go-to places for you. (laughs) Am I right? Obadiah is the shortest book in the Old Testament Scriptures, a single chapter, 21 verses. Probably, if I'm guessing, one of the more pristine places in your Bible, right? These aren't the soiled two pages in your Bible. These aren't the ones that are frayed a little bit so much because you've turned there and thumbed there so often. Maybe there's not a lot of highlighting here. And these 21 verses are a bunch of notes in the margins of the prophecy of Obadiah. The, the little ribbon, right, in, in your Bible probably has never, maybe never fallen in, into this crease <laughs> in, in the book of Obadiah. And the spine on your Bible isn't, isn't creased from turning here so much that, that it's one of the places that just sort of randomly open, if you randomly open your Bible, that it falls to, to this page, maybe. That's okay. But we're going we're gonna to dig in here because... This is God's word. And because it's probably true that that this is one of the places that maybe we don't turn to very often, I'm excited to dig into it. Because it does contain a message that is from God and intended for His people to be profitable in all kinds of ways. It will encourage us. It will strengthen us when we understand it and when we set our minds on it. So remember, once again, as we've learned, as we've been studying these 12 Old Testament books that are called the Minor Prophets, remember that they're only minor in terms of their length, not in terms of their significance or the importance of the message that they proclaim. They're no less significant, they're no less important than any of the other books. They're just shorter than the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And in fact, this one is shorter than any other book in the Old Testament. But the message that Obadiah proclaims, the message that God proclaims through the prophet is by no means of minor significance. It's important because Obadiah was prophesying during one of those times in history and in his life and in his experience and in the circumstances of the nation that he was a part of when things were miserable, when things were absolutely chaotic, when everything was careening out of control, when things were coming apart at the seams, where there didn't seem to be any light at the end of the tunnel, where there didn't seem to be any possible solution to the problems anywhere in sight. That's the context that Obadiah was given this vision, this revelation from God in. His name, Obadiah, means a servant of God. And other than that, we don't know anything about this person who wrote this book. But what he writes in these 21 verses teach us plenty about the God who he served. And that's what we want to come to terms with. This little book is, as as verse 1 says it is, it's a vision that God gave to Obadiah about the nation of Edom. 
Now, Obadiah wasn't from that nation. Obadiah was from the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Israelite nation that had been divided. And Edom was a nation that had always given Judah problems. And now God is going to call them to account for that. This is a vision of God's sovereign judgment against Edom. And verse 20 gives us a clue as to when this prophecy was given to Obadiah and what the circumstances were when he received it because because it refers to the exiles of the sons of Israel and specifically from Jerusalem. And so what that means is that almost certainly this little book of prophecy was revealed by God during the time of the Babylonian exile of the southern kingdom which was also during the lifetime of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And those prophets, which we're more familiar with probably, focused their prophecies mainly on the people of Judah and Jerusalem who were going through the trauma of the exile and who were learning that it had all happened because of God's judgment against their sin. And how God was calling them to repentance and to put their confidence and their trust in Him once again. And also, those longer books of prophecy focused some on the Babylonians who had come and invaded Judah and taken the survivors into captivity back in Babylon and then destroyed the city of Jerusalem, torn down the temple of God, burned all the ruins. But the Old Testament teaches that in the history of that that catastrophe, that fell on Judah and Jerusalem and the people of God at the hands of the Babylonians, this nation of the Edomites also played an important part, an important role. Before we get to that, it's really important for us to understand exactly who the Edomites were, where they came from, and what their interactions were with the people of Israel, because the reality is that the entire history of these two nations, the Israelites and the Edomites, was a history that was characterized by hostility and tension entirely, unrelentingly, from the get-go, from beginning to end. The hostility between them went all the way back to the births of the two patriarchs of each nation, who were the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. You remember this story, right? Jacob and Esau were the twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. So these are the grandsons, Jacob and Esau are the grandsons of Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 25, After Isaac has been born to Abraham and Sarah, he's the child of promise, he marries Rebekah, Rebekah becomes pregnant with twin boys, and it says in Genesis 25-22 that the children struggled together within her. That word means literally they were wrestling around together in the womb, fighting with each other in the womb, and she could feel that happening inside of her from the get-go jostling around, kicking and pushing and shoving and fighting and trying to get the upper hand on one another. And she asked God, she cries out and says, why is this happening to me? What's going on? And God answered her and said, this is a quote from Genesis 25, two nations 
are in your womb. Two peoples from within you who shall be divided. And the one shall be stronger than the other, but the older one shall serve the younger. So see, from the outset, by the, by the plan of God, by the decree of God, these two boys and the descendants and the people and the nations that would come from them would always be divided against one another with the people of the older brother serving the people of the younger brother. And you probably remember how the story plays out, right? Esau was born first, the older brother, and he was the bigger one. He was rugged when he was born, big, strong guy, grew up to be a big, burly hunter, covered from head to toe with thick red hair all over his body. But when Esau was born first and came out of the womb, his little brother Jacob who was smaller and slighter and smooth, didn't have any hair. He was literally grasping on to Esau's heel coming out of the womb. He was trying, even from birth, to hold his big brother back and, and get ahead of him. And when they had grown, Esau, the older, bigger, burly hunter, was out hunting all day long one day, and he came home exhausted. He came home famished, starving, hungry, and he found his little brother, Jacob, cooking a pot of lentil stew. And Jacob, the, the uncompassionate opportunist who wanted to get ahead, instead of giving his brother a bowl of stew, sold his brother the bowl of stew, took advantage of his desperation in exchange for the birthright that belonged to Esau by rights as the firstborn son. And then, of course, later in their life, when their father Isaac was old and blind and near to death, their mother Rebekah helped Jacob to deceive and to fool Isaac into giving his final blessing to Jacob instead of to Esau. Isaac had said to Esau, Hey, Bring me some food to eat so that I can give you a blessing before I die. And Rebekah heard that and went out and told Jacob, you can get the blessing instead of Esau if you, if you take the skins of two goats and cover yourselves with them because he can't see you and he'll feel you and he'll think you're hairy. He'll think you're the brother. He'll think you're Esau and he'll give you the blessing. And that's what happened. And of course Esau, and understandably so and rightly so, was incensed with his brother. And so they, they grew apart. They drifted apart from one another. And Esau was indignant. Esau was disgruntled because of the way that he had been mistreated by his little brother. So their families, the two of them, their families grew. Eventually they became two neighboring nations. Israel, the name of Jacob that God changed his name to, Israel and Edom, the descendants of Esau became known as the Edomites. And the animosity between those two nations continued all throughout their history, throughout the years. If you remember back to when we studied the book of Amos, God proclaimed his judgment against Edom for the sin that they had committed against Israel, his chosen nation. 
Amos chapter 1, verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four I will not revoke the punishment because Edom pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore it in perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. He was an ungracious, unforgiving, vengeful brother and the nation was that way towards Israel. They were unrelenting in, in vengeful, spiteful violence against the nation of Israel time and time again throughout the histories of those nations. And especially against the southern kingdom of Judah because they lived near each other. The Edomites lived in the land to the east of Judah in the territory that's now known as the modern day country of Jordan. Look at verse 3 here of the book of Obadiah. God talks about the arrogance of the Edomites who thought that they were invincible. They thought they were indestructible. He says that they lived in the clefts of the rock in lofty dwelling places, thinking that no one could get to them and no one could defeat them. You ever um, see the third Indiana Jones movie? Uh, the Last Crusade, I think it's called, where they find this big temple at the end of this canyon that's been carved straight into the wall of the canyon. It's not computer generated, that's a real place. It's a historical site called Petra in Jordan. There's not some ancient Templar knight in there like in the movie. But what that place is, the, the one that they filmed actually, is, was the, the treasury of the Edomite kingdom in the times of the Old Testament. They literally did carve these massive structures, dwelling places, temples, treasuries, into the clefts of the rock. And they lived in there, and it did. It made it hard for their enemies to get to them. And at the same time, they were constantly going out and attacking and pillaging other nations, including and especially the nation of Judah because of this pent-up, long-standing animosity. They were struggling against them, even as God told Rebekah would happen ever since the womb. So all of this then came to a head when the mighty Babylonians marched from the east, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, and marched against Judah and Jerusalem. They killed a lot of people initially, and then they took a lot of people captive back to Babylon and eventually they laid siege to Jerusalem, and eventually they tore the walls of Jerusalem down and poured into the city and tore everything down, literally so that there were no buildings left standing. Even the temple, there wasn't one stone stacked on another. It was all just leveled, raised completely to a pile of rubble, and the Edomites helped them to do it. They gladly sided with the enemies of God's people in order to see violence done to Judah and Jerusalem. And then they celebrated when Jerusalem was finally destroyed. Look at verse 11 here of Obadiah's message talking about the day when the strangers, the foreigners, that's the Babylonians, came marching in. God says to the Edomites, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. 
But don't gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. That's what they were doing. There was no compassion. There was no empathy. There was no desire to help. There was a a desire to hurt. And they gloated and they rejoiced at the ruin of Jerusalem. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Gloat over the disaster and loot his wealth. That's what they did. And God is condemning them for it. So the book of Obadiah is a vision. It's a, it's a prophetic message of God's judgment against the Edomites, this nation that descended from Esau because of their, their participation in the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem, who, of course, descended from Jacob. And all of that happened around 586 B.C. when the Babylonians invaded. And the judgment that God proclaims against Edom involves... The Edomites who thought that they were invulnerable because they were dug into the clefts of the rock there and nobody could bring them down. The judgment that God proclaims involves them being not just hurt but completely wiped out as a nation. Never to be restored again to the face of the earth. And that, as a historical fact, is exactly what happened. And so we see God's people in Judah and Jerusalem. They were living through some very hard, horrendous circumstances. Everything seemed to be completely out of their control. There seemed to be no end in sight for their troubles. There didn't seem to be any hope. There wasn't any light at the end of that tunnel. They, they didn't seem to have any possible solutions to the problems that they were facing. And in the midst of that, God spoke to them through his prophet Obadiah, and the message is is eminently relevant for us today and profitable to us, right? Even as Paul told Timothy that all scripture is because it's breathed out by God. And in this little book of the Bible, Obadiah teaches us three great, all-important truths which will bring us great encouragement and blessing in the hard circumstances of our own lives when it seems to us like things are out of control. There's no hope in sight and no solutions to be found to the problems that we face. And those three truths that we can glean from this book are first, that in the midst of all of the chaos, somebody is in charge. Our God reigns. He sits in heaven and does whatever he pleases, even as we confessed at the beginning of our service this morning. He is in absolute sovereign control over it all. That's going to be our focus for the rest of our time today. But then secondly, the sovereign God who reigns is righteous and holy and a righteous judge over the whole earth. So that we don't have to worry about making everything that's wrong right because He will. We don't have to worry that evil is going to prevail and win the day because He won't let it. And then third, He will triumph over all of that wickedness and evil in the world. We're going to look at the first one of those truths today and the rest of them will take up or the other two will take up next time. In every time of trouble, in every season of suffering and strife in every age of affliction God's people can rest assured that the almighty God sits in heaven and rules over it all 
with absolute sovereign authority and control. He hasn't tuned out. He hasn't failed to take notice. He hasn't forgotten. It's not that he doesn't care. Whenever chaos seems to be reigning in this world, like like a big old out-of-control classroom full of fourth graders who are unsupervised, and we want to scream, who is in charge here? We can know the answer is that God is in charge. And we can rest in the reality that it's never chaos that reigns. It's the sovereign Lord God who reveals himself in his word as not only being in control, but always being faithful and always being good. So, verse 1, thus says the Lord concerning Edom. What are we going to do about Edom? Who's in charge here? Well, we've heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up and let us rise against her for battle. Now, who's the her there at the end of verse 1? Who is it that God is telling that that warfare is coming against them? Most scholars say that it is Edom, since that's who he's talking about right out of the gate there. Others say it's Jerusalem. And that God is letting Edom know that he's watching. That he's omnisciently aware of the Edomites' plan to help the Babylonians to attack Jerusalem and make war against Jerusalem. That he's not blind to that. Either either interpretation is possible. And either way, the message is the same. And the message is God knows everything. And he cares about everything. And he is in control of all things. The Lord, all caps here, right, in, in our Bibles, Yahweh, the great I Am, the uncreated one, the one by whom all things were created, the faithful one, the God of covenants and promises. He's the one who's in charge of everything that he made, of the nations and of everything that goes on in our world. He's the one that's in charge of history. Again, think back to Amos a month or more ago now. Amos chapter 3, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? doesn't mean God's capable of evil or authors any kind of wickedness. It just means that when wicked things happen, you can rest assured that God knows about it and it wouldn't have happened if He didn't want it to happen. And that there's purpose in it. And that eventually, God's good purposes prevail. No disaster can come to any city or to any of our lives that the all-knowing God doesn't know about. And that he who is sovereign over it all has not purposed and decreed and allowed. We know that the disaster that came to Jerusalem with the Babylonian captivity was not just known by God, but purposed by God, decreed by God. Because he says so. All over the Old Testament, especially in a book like Habakkuk, which we're going to get to in in a while here too in our study of the minor prophets, where he says that he's the one who will raise up the Babylonians in order for his purposes of judgment to be carried out. And then he'll be the one to pour out judgment against the Babylonians for the evil that they perpetrate against the Israelites. 
And the same truth, the same reality undergirds this judgment, the disaster that's going to come against Edom. God's in charge of it. God decrees it. Calvin says, in this world, wars are never stirred up merely at random or even ultimately by the causes of mortal men. But behind them all lies the secret influence and plan of God. And this morning we need to know that that's good news, not bad news. It, it may not feel like good news to think that behind everything that's hard going on in the world and in my life, God's in charge. What, does that mean He doesn't like me? Does that mean He's mad at me? Does that mean He's punishing me? doesn't mean any of those things. If you're a child of God, it means you can trust Him because He's good and He's faithful and He's in control. Nothing in this world and nothing in our lives happens without purpose, and that is good news. Nothing in the universe happens just according to the impersonal and naturalistic mechanical forces and happenings in the universe. Or ultimately, even according to the evil intentions of wicked men. Either of those options would be the bad news, right? If no one is, if, if literally no one's in charge and everything's just sort of happening randomly, that's not good news at all. Because there's no purpose behind anything. And you can't control any of it. And if evil beings are ultimately in charge of what's going on in the universe, that's even worse news. But if the one true God is in charge, that's really, really good news because He is always good in all of His purposes, in all of His will, in all of His ways. He's always good even when it doesn't feel good to us. And here's the thing with us. Here's, here's what tends to happen most often with us when there's trouble in our lives and trouble in the world around us. What we do is we tend to focus more on the trouble than, than, than on the Lord. We kind of take these, these binoculars up to our minds and our souls and we zoom in on the trouble so that the trouble just takes up our whole perspective and God's out there somewhere and we're not focused on Him. He's sovereign and He's good, but we're not focused on Him. And see, we tend to do this Oftentimes, I think, even when we've got our hands folded and our eyes closed and, and we're praying about the troubles, still our focus is more on the troubles. Still, we're more concerned about the troubles. Still, we're, we're more impressed with the troubles and they're making a bigger impact on us than God is. And see, then what happens when the troubles are in our focus more than our God then to us, the troubles seem much, much bigger than Him. And then our reactions are more defined by the troubles than by the Lord and by our feelings than by His truth. Because in those moments, again, when the trouble is our main focus, that's what seems to be biggest to us. And that's when our reactions become dominated by things like fear and anxiety and, and panic and bitterness, and frustration, and despair, and hopelessness. But see, if He is our focus, 
if like we're facing this big trouble, but we can take those binoculars and zoom in to Him and how He's revealed Himself to us in His Word, even in places like Obadiah, a little tiny book, so that His omniscience and omnipotence and goodness and faithfulness become this this lens through which we can see the trouble, then He's huge and the troubles seem much smaller, certainly than He is. And that's when fear and anxiety can become quelled by comfort and peace, which comes from knowing that He's in charge and that He's good. The very last verse of Obadiah's little prophecy here, again, given in the middle of great, massive trouble, when all hope seemed to be lost, when it seemed like evil had won the day, the very last verse, verse 21, speaks of the salvation that God will bring. And he assures his people, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And he's not talking about the little kingdom of Edom. Nobody cares. What that little phrase means, the kingdom shall be the Lord's, what it means is that the Lord will rule over not just Edom, but everything. The word that Obadiah uses there that's probably translated kingdom in your Bible literally means kingship. The kingship, the rule, the reign, not just some of it, but all of it will be Yahweh's, will be the Lord's, will be the great I am's kingship over everything that he's made right psalm 103 verse 19 the lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom it's the same word his kingship rules over all obadiah is affirming that same great truth and this is what the bible teaches clearly and plainly from cover to cover god is king over everything god is sovereign over everything And everything includes every single trial that you face in your life. God created the whole universe out of nothing. There was nothing in the beginning but God. There wasn't a bunch of dust floating around in a universe that just needed to be like molded like Play-Doh into stars and galaxies. That would have been impressive enough if God did all that, but He spoke it all into existence in the first place out of nothing. Every single molecule and quark and photon came into existence when God said so. By the sovereign power of His voice. And there's never been an instant since He did that that He didn't reign over it all. Listen, even Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians who attacked Judah and Jerusalem, even Nebuchadnezzar came to realize and confess this truth that God is sovereign over everything after God humbled him and redeemed him. You remember in Daniel chapter 4? He had to eat. Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with this bizarre condition where he literally became like a cow. His nails grew out and his hair grew out and he's, he's crawling on all fours out in the grass, eating grass for seven years. And then God restored him from that and he looked at God and he said, okay, I, I got nothing I can hold over you and I will submit to you and I will confess your greatness and your glory. And he says in Daniel 4, 35, all the inhabitants of this earth are accounted as nothing before him. 
He does according to His will among the host of heaven, among every inhabitant of the earth, and no one can stay His hand or say to Him, what are you doing? The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, who chafed against the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, but whose eyes were opened by the grace of Jesus, would then go on to say in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 that in Him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. All things. That means all things in the physical world, this whole planet that we live on and, and the universe above us, Psalm 104, verse 14, gives praise to God like this. You, God, you cause the grass of the fields to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. God does it. Psalm 135, verse 6, assures us that whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Jesus, who is the incarnate God, comforts us in Matthew chapter 6 and quells our anxiety. He says, you don't need to be anxious because of the troubles because you can focus on God Himself. And one of the ways you can do that, Jesus says, is, is, is you can look at the flowers that grow out there. Consider the lilies of the field and look how they grow. They don't even try to grow. They don't toil, right? They don't, they don't, they don't work really hard to make the little petals. They don't toil or spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these flowers which God clothes, which God makes beautiful. And if, if God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow, you throw it into the oven in order to cook some bread over, right? This stuff that we don't care about. My boys go out there and they weed whack it down and they mow it all down. God cares about it. And if he cares about that grass, how much more does he care about you? How much more will he clothe you and provide for you? God sovereignly provides for the animals even. Psalm 104 and verse 21 says that the lions seek their food from him. Verse 28 of that same psalm says that that the creatures in the sea are given food by God as He opens up His hand and fills them with good things. This is the biblical perspective. Stuff doesn't just happen in the world. It happens because God does it. Jesus, again, in Matthew 6, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap in order to gather food into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value to Him than they are? Can't you trust Him? Can't you say He's bigger than the troubles or the worries or the concerns? God is sovereign over the affairs of the nations in this world. Psalm 22, kingship belongs to the Lord and He rules over all the nations. All of them. Psalm 65 proclaims that He rules by His might forever. And that his eyes keep watch over the nations always. Job chapter 12. He makes the nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and then he leads them away. It's according to his purpose, his will. 
Paul preached to the unbelieving philosophers in Athens. Remember Acts chapter 17, Mars Hill? He said that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. God did it. These nations are here because God put them here. He determines and allows periods and boundaries for their dwelling places. Again, Daniel, who was himself taken away by the Babylonians into captivity and made to live in Babylon as a slave in a pagan land under a pagan king, could have spent his whole time going, oh, it's so horrible and I lost everything and what am I going to do? But he didn't do that. He put the binoculars up and looked at God and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might because He changes times and seasons. Because He removes kings and He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. Praise God, even though I'm sitting here in this foreign land eating foreign food under the subjugation of a pagan king who doesn't even speak my language or know my name. All of that is true. God's in charge even over the trouble. God raised up the Babylonians and God would tear them down. All according to His sovereign goodness. The universe isn't in charge. The universe doesn't care about you. But the God who reigns over it does. Evil doesn't reign sovereign in this world and always get its way. Our God who sits in heaven does all that he pleases. And he's got every hair on our heads numbered, Jesus says, right? Matthew 10. Not a single hair even can fall out of your head without God knowing about it, decreeing it, and caring about it. Apart from his will. This is, see, this is the lens through which Obadiah views and sees the world around him and the circumstances of his life. He's confident that the sovereign God is working out his purposes for the good of his people in spite of and actually through all of the evil and violent ways of the wicked people in this world. It's all going to end up accomplishing God's purposes anyways. Praise God. Even as much as that same thing is true, that through the inexplicably wicked choices and actions of evil men, the sovereign plans and purposes of God were fulfilled and accomplished when Jesus was nailed to a cross, were they not? Was it evil? Yes. Yes, those, those men perpetrated the greatest crime ever. The greatest outpouring of violence and hatred ever against the Son of God incarnate. And yet it was all in fulfillment of the the predetermined plan of God and His purposes. It's hard to fully understand, and it's okay, because God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? Isaiah reminds us of that. And so what we do is we simply accept what He says in His Word. We say, you know what? God's mind is bigger than my mind. This is God's God-breathed Word, so I don't take it and go, well, if it doesn't seem to makes sense to me, then I have to squish it down into the little box of my... No, no, no. Let it be what it is. He rules the whole world and all of history by His sovereign authority. 
including using the wickedness of the nations and sinful people to accomplish his good purposes, which is hard to understand, but it's what it says, so it's what it is. And then he requires the nations who do wicked things and and sinners who do sinful things to stand before him and to give an account for the wickedness that they alone are responsible for. How does that make sense? Because God says so. Let it be. Here, God is sovereignly proclaiming that Edom is going to answer for their sins against Israel. Verse 8. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and take all understanding out of Mount Esau? Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. All of them. He's holding them all to account. As you have done, it shall be done to you. And your deeds shall return on your own head. Justice is coming. God is supremely sovereign over everything and over every instance of history, including every evil and and every trouble. And those who do evil and cause trouble are held responsible, righteously and justly so, for the choices and actions that they do that are contrary to God's revealed will and His law and His holiness and His goodness and His love, they will answer to Him for it all. So see, Obadiah is proclaiming both of these truths together, which God reveals all throughout His Word. God is sovereign over everything, even using evil towards His own good purposes. Number one, right? The the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs 16.4 says, couldn't be more clear. Again, Peter points to the greatest example of that in Acts chapter 2. God is sovereign over everything, using even wicked and evil things for His good purposes, and then the people who do the evil and the wickedness are responsible for their evil and wickedness. Well, aren't those contradictions? Apparently not, because God says so. This Jesus, this is what, this is what Peter says to the wicked people in Jerusalem who had a hand in Jesus' crucifixion. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's your fault, you're culpable for it, you're responsible for it, you're going to answer to God for it, and it accomplished God's purposes at the same time. There's no contradiction there. Maybe it seems paradoxical to us, but these things are held together in perfect harmony in God's mind and God's will and God's word, including here in Obadiah. And so, we say amen to it. Ultimately, Obadiah and the rest of the Word of God helps us to see and to understand and and to rest in this relationship between God's sovereign providential care and, and governance of this world and of our lives on the one hand, and then the wicked, evil things that happen in this world and the troublesome things and the painful things that happen in our lives on the other hand. Because what it teaches us is God's sovereign and He is working all things together for good. In His sovereign purposes over everything in every instance, He is bringing good out of evil. So many examples of that all throughout God's Word, right? Examples that aren't just teaching us a brilliant theological truth. They're anchoring our confidence and hope and joy in this life to the bedrock of God's goodness and sovereign control. 
without knowing that, how else could God's people get through the catastrophic destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians unless they understood and trusted in and hoped in the reality that it didn't just happen and it wasn't just ultimately because evil reigns in this world. It was ultimately because God in His goodness purposed it for some good purpose. Jeremiah was there when it happened in Jerusalem, when the Babylonians finally pushed through the walls and and stormed into the city and put people to the sword and tore it all down and burned the ruins and committed atrocities that I don't even want to say out loud here. But you can read about them in the book of Lamentations. And Jeremiah, watching all of that, understood that behind it all was the sovereign plan of God even though it was so traumatic to him and it hurt him so deeply, it did not feel good. Right? He, he said in Lamentations there, I, I'm a man who's seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He knows that God's sovereign over this. He says, God has made my teeth to grind on the gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. His sovereign purposes have made my soul feel like it's bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is, Jeremiah says. My endurance has perished and my hope is gone. You ever feel like that? You ever feel that the the pain is so deep and unrelenting and and all-consuming that you, you forget what happiness is? And that you're just out of steam? Your endurance has perished. you got nothing to hope in. Jeremiah felt that way. But in that, he didn't deny or forget that God was sovereign. And he didn't deny or forget that God is good. He didn't say, God is sovereign and I don't deserve this. And so God is bad for letting this or, or doing this to me. Because he didn't let himself stay more focused on the trouble than on the Lord. And that was trouble when Jerusalem burned. As big and overwhelming as that trouble was, he remembered that the sovereign God is bigger, infinitely bigger, and that he's not just sovereign, he's also good, and he's unchanging, so everything he does is good, right? Unfathomably good. So, Jeremiah, teeth grinding on the gravel, I've forgotten how to be happy, I've got no more endurance, I've lost all hope. But, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He's good. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good. The Lord is good. The Lord is good for all those who wait for Him and to the soul who seeks Him. And so it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. He's sovereign and he's good. Even in the wickedness, even in the pain, even when it feels the opposite of good, he's bringing good from all the evil and trouble and pain. He's worth more than anything we could ever gain in this world or lose in this world. He's worth more. And so he's the only one that our souls care ever, ever find hope in. 
how else, besides knowing this and having this same perspective, how else did, did poor Joseph go through the horrendous, years-long trial that he endured at the end of the book of Genesis? Starting with, right, the unspeakable abuse that his own brothers inflicted on him. They stripped him down, they beat him up, they threw him into a pit and sold him to slave traders. They trafficked him. And he ended up in Egypt where, by God's kindness, things started to look up for a while until Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him and he resisted the temptation only to have her lie unjustly about it and land him in prison. What would you say if all that was happening to you? What would you say to your brothers the next time you saw them if their cruelty and their wickedness towards you caused years of suffering for you? Well, Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that matters more. Because the Sovereign Lord was in His focus and the Sovereign Lord was infinitely bigger and better than all His troubles. And so anxiety and fear and bitterness all gave way to joy and hope and love. He loved His brothers. He forgave His brothers. He lavished good things on His brothers in spite of them. He was able to see in all of it that God's Good purposes were being worked out either through the wickedness and the pain. God was on the throne. So good purposes came about for Joseph, for Joseph's brothers, eventually for the whole nation of Israel, ultimately for the salvation of the world because Messiah came through all of that. This is our God, Christians. He has not changed even though everything in the universe keeps on changing, and if we only focus on that, it seems like chaos to us. The first thing Obadiah would teach us is to trust this same sovereign God who is always good. He's the covenant God. He's the God who makes promises. He promised to bless Abraham and his family. He promised to make Abraham and his family a blessing to all the nations of the world. In spite of Abraham's old age, in spite of Sarah's barrenness, in spite of their doubt, they laughed at God when God said, I'm going to give you a child of promise. They laughed at him, and in spite of it, he still was faithful. They took matters into their own hands sinfully and said, well, it's certainly not going to happen the way God said it was, so let's try Abraham conceiving a child with Hagar, the handmaid. And then you get Ishmael, and that wasn't good, but God still was faithful and worked out His promises. Man, don't be like Abraham and Sarah and say, I don't think I can trust God with this, I'm going to do it my way, because you're going to end up with Ishmael. I do it all the time. Bungle everything and mess it all up. But God still caused good to come through all of it, and Obadiah knew all of that and believed that God always keeps his promises, and ultimately understood that the kingship belongs to the Lord who rules over everything. So, listen, bottom line, trouble is inevitable in this world. You're you're not going to be able to orchestrate everything to keep yourself from experiencing trouble. Pain is unavoidable. 
in this world. Wickedness is always going to characterize this evil age that we live in until Christ returns and makes all things new. That's why we camped out at the end of the book of Revelation for a few weeks to keep that truth in perspective. The only way to live in this world until that happens and in these bodies and not be enslaved by fear and anxiety and futility and despair and bitterness, but instead be, 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 be full of joy and hope and peace is not to hope that our circumstances are going to get better and better, but to, but to put our trust in the sovereignty and goodness of our God who rules over it all. And so Obadiah helps that he proclaims God's sovereign over the nations. God's sovereign over Edom. God's sovereign over Judah. The same God is sovereign over Russia, sovereign over China, sovereign over North Korea, sovereign over the United States of America, sovereign over the White House, sovereign over the Congress, Sovereign over the governor's mansion in California. Does that shock you? It's crazy, but it's true. And he's sovereign over our own personal lives in every single aspect, every instant of every day. Here's what Paul said to the Christians who were living in Rome during the days of his missionary travels, where there was persecution breaking out against them. He focused them beyond their troubles and on the infinitely bigger God and His sovereign purposes for them, even in and through their troubles. What do you say to Christians who are being persecuted by the wicked kings of this earth? Maybe it'll get better? Hang in there? Tomorrow's another day? No, no, no. Here's what Paul... Don't even, don't even look at the trouble. Look at the God who's sovereign over it. We know that... For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And that's what the troubles are, are working in God's faithfulness to do. Like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap, to keep conforming us to the image of Jesus. Who also suffered and was tested in every way that we are and yet without sin. And then just a few verses later in Romans 8, after he says that, this great confidence in God's sovereign goodness leads Paul to say, what are we going to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God's in your focus. God's dominating your perspective. All of His sovereignty and glory and strength and majesty and goodness and faithfulness and the beauty of His holiness. What, what's anybody going to do to you? Make you suffer for a little while in this world and then you get to be with Him forever? They're going to kill you? That's all they can do. That's the worst they can do. And then you get to be with Him forever? This same great truth lies at the heart of God's message through Obadiah. God is the sovereign Lord of the nations. God will bring all wickedness to account. God will use it all to bring about His purposes. His kingship reigns over everything. And because that's true, since God reigns in this world, then what can anything or anyone do to us? They can't do anything that He hasn't preordained to be used for our eternal good. Rest in that. Constantly call this truth to mind and therefore have hope. Amen?
Let's pray and then let's sing. Our God and our Father, we're so grateful for all that you reveal in your word and all that you are. We praise you for your sovereign majesty. We praise you for your faithfulness. We praise you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy to us, especially as as all of that mercy has been poured out upon us and lavished upon us through everything that Jesus Christ has done to save us from eternal wrath and condemnation and to give us an ultimate future and a hope and an inheritance with you and of you in glory forever. Father, help us to trust you and fill us with the joy of the Lord that will be our strength. Even as we struggle along this pilgrim way, help us to be faithful as we continue to put our trust in you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.